0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio
1: studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hello, hello. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. And this is episode number 274. Rich Kimball here along with Kerry Haskell. And we are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a pair of terrific conversations for you this week on the podcast. A little bit later on, the wonderful sports writer and author Joe Poznanski will talk about his terrific new book uh, that just dropped uh, on September 5th called Why We Love Baseball. Up first, though one of our absolute favorite guests on the program. Now our producer and co-host of our radio show, Kerry Haskell, Uh, will still be part of the podcast and and the show in some element, but he'll be doing it from a new location. As a Kerry, you'll be moving to New Orleans in just a couple of weeks. Is it something I said? (laughs) No, it's something that's been in
0: the works for six years now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a slow motion move, but uh, finally reaching the end line.
1: Well, when I I said to you, uh, hey, is there anybody that you want to get on the show before you leave mm. I mean again you'll still be on on a, on a regular basis but not every day and uh, there was not much hesitation on your part
0: no it was uh, it was somebody you know the first name that came to my mind was Stephen Tobolowski it's you know he, he's just been a great guest and uh, just getting to know him as he's come on and and, and come up to the Bangor mm. to do a reading it uh, of, uh, from his books um it, it's yeah he's become a true friend of the show
1: yeah and and as you said uh, not just uh, not just a radio friend but a but a true friend mm. and uh, a great guy super talented actor author storyteller and uh, well we talked as we always do about a lot of different topics with steven Tobolowski here on downtown hello steven
2: hey rich good good to talk to you good to see everybody in maine again good to see the studio again
1: Oh, I I want to hold something up for you. This is good for the radio audience. If you can, if you can see this on camera, it's a picture of you here in the studio.
2: They're in the (laughs) studio and we we were trying alcohol weren't we weren't we, we drinking we, different kinds of alcohol we
1: we may have had uh, some some wine in here i
0: think I, I, and yeah i, I believe so. eric had brought over a, a couple of uh samples for yes. us we
2: were sampling this is what grown-ups do science when they want to drink in places that they shouldn't drink like in the radio studio <laughs> you you call it sampling you know, it's like we're going to do a wine tasting. That's a good one.
1: That's how we explained it to the FCC. <laughs> <That's> not- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know congratulations are in order. You have added to the uh, the Tobolowski family, right? A, a new grandchild or relatively we have a new? new
2: grandbaby. Uh, her name is Ember, E M B E R, Ember. And she, unlike Dior, who is like, the quizzling child. Dior is like beautiful and amazing and mind-blowing. Imber is the happy child laughing all the time. She's happy squeezing a ball. This is, this is the easiest child in the world. So it's wonderful. I have a, another Diorism. I may have told you the one Diorism. The first Diorism was, this will tell you all about Dior, is she asked... Uh, Uh, my son, Robert, uh, her father, Daddy, when you were what they call a baby, where was I? (laughs) That's the Diorism. So Dior spent, yeah, think about that for a while. (laughs) Dior spent the night this last week with me and Anne, which is rough (laughs) on me and Anne, let me tell you. Lots of bath time, lots of story time. And uh, Dior was worried about monsters in the house. And I told her that, When we had our two boys, Robert and William, Ann and I went to each room and made all the monsters leave. So our house is actually monster-proof. So I saw her in the morning for breakfast, and I said, how was your night? And she shook her head, not good. Why? She goes, the monsters. Dior, I told you I got rid of all the monsters. She said, I know. I just haven't learned how to close my eyes.
1: Oh oh, man.
2: Wow. And I think about that every time here in Los Angeles (laughs) that you have to learn how to close your eyes, man. The monsters are everywhere.
1: So is there any better job out there than, than being a granddad?
2: No, nothing better. Now, nothing better at all. And again, It's all love and no responsibility. (laughs) I had no idea being a grandfather would be so fantastic. I love it. I relish it. It is the greatest thing in my life. And for all you guys out there who are young and uh, looking around, looking, thinking, should I settle down? Should I get married? The answer is yes. Should I stay with the woman? The answer is, if possible, (laughs) yes. (laughs) And if. There is a grandchild that comes from this union. Eventually, you will be the happiest guy in the world. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it.
1: We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. We want to steer clear, of course, and not uh, not have any sag after violations here. But I I do want to uh, talk, if we can, about what happened when you were you were filming a, a movie, a Hallmark movie, and uh, and your father had some medical issues, and and you were telling me that the Hallmark people really stepped up.
2: It's it's really amazing. I'm doing, uh, I was doing a movie for Hallmark this year. I've done two now, and uh, I get a call from my brother saying, Stephen, you've got to be able to come home to Dallas. I don't know if dad is going to live through the week. You've got to be able to come home. And I was almost through with the Hallmark, shoot and i went to our producer and i said i have a problem because i was scheduled to finish the hallmark shoot fly back to salt lake fly back to burbank whatever i said could you rearrange could you rearrange everything and they did uh when the a couple days later i finished the shoot they had a limo waiting for me that took me to the airport that flew me to dallas that had a limo waiting for me that took me to my brother's house we we dealt with dad which by the way was a happy story and and rich i i don't know if you do the same thing but i always end up comparing things that happened in my life and you know to make a a simile of something that you're recognizing that you don't understand The things dad was going through was very much what I experienced when I finished my heart surgery and they put me on a pain medication that had morphine in it. Mm. And I was seeing things were moving. I was just out of my mind and they had put dad on a morphine based pain medication. And I talked to my brother, the doctor and he said, well, this all looks like it could be drug related and paul said let's change let's change the whole medical routine up of what dad's getting they took him off the morphine they gave him a different kind of pain medication and all of his symptoms went away wow and by the time i left dallas dad was sitting in his chair talking he recognized everyone everything was back to normal and the hallmark people then got a limo and brought me from Dallas to the airport, flew me to Burbank, got a limo from Burbank to my home. So uh, in time, when times were tough, I was very happy that they helped me and accommodated me. That was above and beyond, I thought.
1: That's wonderful. Also understand uh, that you had an interesting shooting experience in Toronto. It was, it
2: was weird. It was weird. (laughs) So it's very weird. I mean, I was doing something for Netflix, which I loved. And I, I played this character and I'm not really sure who I am or what I am because a lot of times when you shoot these streaming shows, they don't tell you what your background is or anything. But I shot this scene where I meet the lead of uh, the show in an elevator and we get in the elevator, we get out of the elevator and he comes to my apartment and then we have a four page scene and he leaves. We shot that and I went back to Los Angeles. And then they said, well, we need to bring you back to Toronto to finish the scene. And I go, what do you mean finish the scene? I only had one scene. We got on the elevator, we got off of the elevator and we shot the scene. Yes but we didn't shoot you in the elevator. I go, what? (laughs) Yeah, you have to come back and we're gonna shoot you in the elevator, in the elevator that doesn't move. It's a phony elevator. And this is what was amazing to me. When you see what happens in filming and TV, how amazing it was. It was enormously complex, because we had already shot me getting on the elevator, so they'd find the same extras that they had (laughs) before on the elevator, standing in the same place. But they had to shoot the elevator going up various floors. Of course, the elevator isn't an elevator, it's not moving. So what happens is the the doors would close, the art department would run in, change the wallpaper, change the number on the door, change the rug, doors, then they had two guys opening the doors up, and it's like we're on a different floor. Then the elevator, some people get off the elevator doctor and the art department runs in, changes the door, the walls, everything, open it up. It's a whole different floor. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was amazing. So that shoot took half a day of me going up in the elevator with various people getting (laughs) off the elevator. So if your kids want to be an actor, steer clear <laughs> there's better ways to make a living i promise you
1: i, I mentioned this to you in a in an email that uh, our uh, regional theater here in Bangor, penobscot theater company celebrating their 50th season and they're producing uh, some plays that they have done in their past and one of them uh, you know very well a pulitzer prize winner crimes of the heart can you uh, can you talk a little bit about uh well the process of what was going on in your world when that was being created
2: oh My (laughs) God. (laughs) Crimes of the heart. So, like, I don't know where to start the story, but I'll start, like, where uh, my girlfriend was Beth Henley. Beth and I were together for about 16 years, from when she was a freshman in college to after she won the Pulitzer Prize for Crimes of the Heart. So we, we went to graduate school because Beth couldn't... Act and she wanted to be an actress. No one would cast her, Uh, so we tried to find some place where we could at least get a graduate degree, so we could teach and do nothing. So we go to the University of Illinois, and they have a a playwriting class that has one girl student in it, and we we went and Beth and I did the reading of her play there, which, which was very good. It was very good. And on the walk home, Beth was saying, you know, Stephen, I think I, instead of being an actress, I want to be a playwright. And I go, okay, baby, you know, you know, one of us could be a dental hygienist, you know, someone's going to have to bring in the money between me not working and you being a playwright. So, uh, an event happened in Beth's family afterwards, where her grandfather got lost in the woods, and Beth started writing furiously. Uh, it was a happy ending to grandfather's story as they finally found him after three days. Uh, he was fine. He wasn't injured. We, Beth and I, get to Los Angeles, and she christened the little breakfast room as her writing area and had her This is before the age of computers, so everything was typed. And you're you are fancy if you had an electric typewriter Mm. instead of the old manual. She an electric, so she's typing away, and she's typing a play that she's telling me is called "Old Granddaddy's," "Old Granddaddy's Dying," and I'm thinking like, okay, not not a great title that make (laughs) you want to come to the theater. "Old Granddaddy's Dying," and so. I wasn't taking this too seriously. And she ends up with this mound of paper on her desk. And I said, well, is it okay if I read Old Granddaddy's Dying? And she said, oh, please. So I start reading the pages off of the desk. Rich, this play was not just good. It was stratospheric. (laughs) It was stratospheric. It was one of the greatest things I had ever read in my life. And I'm reading the pages while she's typing to get to the end of the play. And in a scene that would be in a Howard Hawks movie, like His Girl Friday, I'm getting to the end of the play as she pulls the last page out and hands it to me. And I burst into tears. And I'm going, Beth, this play, well, not only this play, this is one of the great plays of I've ever read. This play will be in New York, I promise you. This play will be in New York, but you cannot have a play that's called Old Granddaddy's Dying. I mean, but this play <laughs> deserves a better title than that. <laughs> so I said, why don't you call it, because one of the sisters in it shoots her husband because she doesn't like the way he looks, That the character Babe. And so uh, I said, why don't you call it uh, Crimes of Passion? because that's what it would be called in a legal court, like what Babe did as a crime of passion. So we had to play Crimes of Passion, and we were going to do it at our local theater, yeah, Equity and, Waiver.
1: And you were going to play Barnett, right?
2: I was going to play Barnett. Thurman Moss was going to play Doc. Uh, Sharon Ulrich was going to play Meg. Sharon Bunn was going to play Lynn. We Beth was going to play Babe. We had the, we were going to do our equity waiver thing and make this play come to life. Well, Sharon Ulrich, unknown to any of us, gave the play, Crimes of Passion, to her agent, who didn't read it. But he kept a pile of plays for a friend of his, who when he came out he, from New York, he liked to read plays. So he gave a pile of plays to this man, Uh, whose name happened to be Gilbert. Gilbert flies back to New York, and we get a phone call from Kennedy Airport, from Gilbert Parker. I answer the phone. He says, could I please speak to Beth Henley? Is she there? Is she at this number? Yes, I give the phone to Beth, and the look on Beth's face is like, while she's listening to this man talk, Gilbert Parker, the man who happened to pick this play to be the first play he read on the way to New York, was one of the leading literary agents in New York. He handled Lillian Hellman, Mark Medoff. He worked with Tennessee Williams. This was one of the biggest guys in the world. And he says, I would like to help you with your play. He says, but it can't have the name Crimes of Passion because Ken Russell is about to do a movie called Crimes of Passion. And even though you can't copyright a title, you should have a different title. So Beth hung up amazed that this man was going to help her with the play, this man she from out of the blue, and she said, sweetie, I need another name for the play. And I said, well, (laughs) if you're not going to name it Crimes of Passion, why don't you call it Crimes of the Heart? Because that's kind of the same kind of thing. So I claim at least I saved the world from old granddaddy's dying. (laughs) And that play went on to win the best play at the Louisville Play Festival Actors, Theater of Louisville Festivals. I ended up playing Barnett at, uh, in St. Louis. It, we, the the play went to, it played in Los Gatos. It, it had a few regional productions, and somebody wanted to bring it off Broadway. And it ended up over at the Manhattan Theater Club. And, uh, was it Melvin Bernhardt? I think, I believe, directed it in New York and uh, ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, Beth ends up nominated for a Tony Award. Then they're going to make a multi million dollar movie of it. Uh, she gets nominated for an Academy Award, and the her life just exploded and everything changed. And uh, it is fantastic. If you haven't seen Crimes of the Heart, you must go to the theater and see it. It's absolutely wonderful. And so many parts of it are true. So many parts of the, of the play are true, which is amazing. And uh, it's one of the great plays. I, I think they have it now in an anthology of, of great plays of the last few decades, which it is. It is spectacular.
1: But if I remember right from your book, too, and and I think the podcast, the success of the play and everything that happened also sent the two of you in opposite directions. Rich,
2: why do you have to bring that (laughs) up? We'll move on. We can change topics. (laughs) So anyway, when you win the Pulitzer Prize— I think Beth won $10,000. I think she won $10,000, something like that. She won $1,000 for Louisville. It it, it wasn't a princely amount, but she she bought a Volkswagen Bug, which she wanted, and a washer-dryer, which we needed. So there was all that, and we celebrated. We celebrated for about a month, and then when all of this success came in, Beth had not only an agent, but many agents, and not only uh, advisors, many advisors, uh, some of them financial advisors. And what we always did before is Beth and I kind of, when we were together, we split everything. So I would pay the rent, she would pay the utilities, because I had a job. I I did children's theater in the schools in Los Angeles, and Beth ended up getting a little job, a temporary job, working in a dog food company. So... (laughs) You know, it wasn't princely. We were used to this life for 10 years where, you know, we just split everything. But once Beth won the Pulitzer and once she gets uh, the play goes to New York, all of the agents and all the managers kind of, you know, so she needs an investment. She needs a new house. So the house is going to be up in the Hollywood Hills. So she ends up with the house, swimming pools and movie stars. <laughs> and whenever, you know, Beth had to go on the road with the play, I had to take care of the house, you know? So I kind of became the yard boy. I was I had to be there to to make sure the gardener got in and out and all this kind of stuff. And it sort of interfered with me having an acting career at all. And so it was... Either I had a career either directing or acting in Beth's plays, or I had nothing. And that was difficult for me. And it was difficult for her because she was traveling all the time everywhere, and she felt like the world was her oyster, and maybe uh, she didn't need to be with her college boyfriend. And, And so that caused... Problem. That caused us uh, difficulty. I think one of my favorite stories. Do have time for one of my favorite stories oh, from this period? Of
1: course we Always. do.
2: So uh, Beth and I broke up, and it was quick. It was very quick. Uh, it just happened one day, and I realized the situation was impossible for me. She really wasn't in a mood to stop me, You know, and I said, I'm moving out. I got all my stuff and I moved out of the house and I took all the money I had and rented a house about four blocks away. So I was still in the same neighborhood renting a house. And as soon as I moved out, I got a call from my agent. Alan Parker wants you to read for the part of the head of the Ku Klux Klan, Mississippi burning. Something like, well, this is psychic. As soon as I leave the house, my career starts again. <laughs> and so I, but I'm very depressed because I broke up with Beth. I feel like I'm dead, really, my heart, soul, and mind. I'm in so much pain. I never had so much psychic pain in my life. So I go in and I read for the head of the Ku Klux Klan, just staring out the window. I love Mississippi. They hate Mississippi. And I just do the speech, I get a call back. I go back a week later, same speech, same depression, looking out the window, and I get a third callback a week later. Now I'm getting scared. You know, now the depression has gone down and the anxiety over getting this part. Three callbacks is serious. Now I'm in the office with real actors who I'd be competing against, like Gary Sinise and people, I mean, really good people. And the secretary leaned out of her desk when I'm sitting there very nervous, feeling like I'm going to choke. And she said, Mr. Tobolowski, I just wanted to tell you, Alan Parker likes you very much. He says everyone has tried to come into the office and be scary in this role, but you are scary naturally. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) she gave me heart. So I went in and had a good third audition. Then I get a fourth audition. But Rich, the fourth audition was going to be in Jackson, Mississippi, Beth Henley's hometown. Whoa. Jackson, Mississippi. Now we had been apart for six weeks. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what if Beth actually flew back to Mississippi? What if she's there in Jackson now when I'm there? What if worlds collide? Now I'm staying at the Holiday Inn in Jackson, Mississippi, and It is the day of my audition. I think my audition was about one o'clock in the afternoon. And it was that morning I thought, what if I stalk Beth? (laughs) What if I stalk her? That's a good idea. I could (laughs) rent a car. No one would recognize. I know where her house is. I could see if she's living there. So I drive over to Beth's house the morning of my audition. (sighs) I park in front of her house, and there through her window, I see her sister walking in the dining room. And says, oh, no, no, it's Lynn. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no, Cece, don't recognize me. And I'm scouching down. Oh, God, if Beth is, oh, this is evil, Stephen. You can't do this, Stephen. This is not good for your head. Drive back to the Holiday Inn. Drive back. So I drove back. I calmed down. I walk into my audition, which is with Alan Parker in a hotel room. So he has a little – the room is all dark except for a light in the corner where he wants me to sit. He has his camera set up. I sit down, and he goes, so, Stephen, I just had dinner with your ex last night. She happens to be in Jackson, Mississippi. And we went out to dinner, and I have a question for you. Why did you two break up? And I said, Alan – we broke up because we had a big disagreement as to what constituted a joke. And he goes, Very good, very good. Let's do the scene. <laughs> so I did the Ku Klux Klan wow. scene. And on my way, walking to my little hotel room in the Holiday and my phone is ringing. It's my agent in California. You have the part. Wow. And so <laughs> there was something psychically tied. To the beginning of my film career and uh, Beth and I breaking up. And uh, we we hadn't talked to each other for many, many, many years, Rich, until I wrote a Dangerous Animals Club. Hmm. I wrote Dangerous Animals Club and Anne, my wife, said, Stephen, you have to call Beth. You have to tell her you're writing these stories and she's in your book. You have to tell her. God bless Ann. She's fearsome. (laughs) It's always good to marry someone who's fearsome. So I call Beth up and Beth tells me she's going to sue me. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, I said, I said I could save you money on the lawyer because you have to prove three things for a lawsuit. One, you have to prove that I said a falsehood, which I didn't. You have to say that I said something negative about you, which I didn't. And you have to prove that I caused uh, harm, uh, uh, injury in terms of uh, physical injury—not physical, but money—that I mm-hmm. that I harmed you financially. And I have emails from people telling me that they had never heard of Crimes of the Heart. And now that they've read my book, they're all going to read it. So I actually can have helped. So anyway, Beth and I had lunch at that point in time. And we didn't really talk about anything. I I think she was playing it close to the vest. And I think... The last time we spoke, out of the blue, I had finished doing an episode of One Day at a Time. And I'm driving home that night after a shoot, and my phone rings on the way home. Beth Henley. And I went, oh, my God. And Beth calls me up on the phone. And she said, how did you get to be you? And I said, part of the way I got to be me was you. You know uh, you know I we both learned a lot when we were together. we both went through a lot when we were together. and uh, that's that's how any of us learn to be who we are is we we kind of ingest the good and the bad and if it doesn't kill us, what is it? It makes us, well, I don't know if it makes us strongest, but, but it does make us weirder. And so we're able to survive. We're able to survive that. But that was the last time I talked about. But, the, but for you folks in Maine, you got to go see Crimes of the Heart. You, will, you won't regret that.
1: And hmm. the best part of the story is that, that you and Ann have been married for, what, 35 years now?
2: Something like that,
1: 35
2: years. And, and uh, I learned something which I'll pass on to the younger members of your audience. A lot of people think the key to marriage is the bedroom. It's not. It's the emergency room. <laughs> you need to be married to someone who can help protect and navigate you when you are injured, when you are ill, when you are in trouble. When, when I had a broken neck, I had Ann Hearn taking care of me. And she just did about everything you could do. I mean, she bathed me in the shower. Uh, she, She helped me walk, she helped me eat. And when I had my open heart surgery, I had Ann Hearn in my corner. And when I had an accident with the pee bottle in my bed, and I kept pressing for the nurses to come and nobody came. So I pressed the red button on my little thing, which means I'm dying of a heart attack. You must come. And they still didn't come until 20 minutes later. And the Russian nurse comes in and says, what is wrong? I said, I had a problem with the pee bottle in the bed. She says, you have misused the blue button. You misused it. I said, yeah, but can you help me? Ann Hearn came in and read everybody in the on that hospital floor, the riot act. She came in and said, "This is not going to happen again. I am get a bed in this room. I am going to stay here with my husband, and from now on, you take orders from me. That is what you need to marry."
0: Yeah You're absolutely right. I, I, when I had my, uh, my surgery, my wife Loretta learned how to do wound dressings, because it, I needed a, uh, I, my foot surgery. It needed to be dressed twice a day, every single day. And she, my daughter had a little bit of a nursing background, so she helped Loretta to learn, and Loretta did that, It not for a little while. That was like a three-month process. I think after the first month, it went to once a day, but she learned how to do it, and it's a big reason why my re- I, I was back to a full recovery in six months, which none of the doctors or the specialists thought would be case they they said you know you'll you'll be approaching normal in 6 months but it'll be a good year before you're back to normal and yeah it it is that is a true test of a relationship
2: yeah the emergency room guys the emergency room <laughs> that's who you need you need someone to protect you when you're flat on your back mm-hmm. in the street or with uh, when you when you mentioned the wound thing Carrie that wound stuff is so serious uh, that happened to my brother's wife, and uh, I had no idea. It was such a risky, horrible thing. Mm. Uh, I'm so glad you came out of that in one piece, and bless your wife for help yeah. for helping you. My yeah. God, that isn't an easy job or a good job, but boy, you had someone in your corner.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and that's why I am still in one piece is uh, because of her. Yeah, and leaving. And one now he's
2: leaving
1: for New Orleans. And now yeah. he's taking her to New Orleans, yeah. and I'm the one left behind, Stephen. <laughs> 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 well, Stephen, it's wonderful to uh, catch up with you as always. Appreciate you coming on uh, one more time while Carrie's still here in studio with us.
2: Yes, Carrie, I give you my love. I will miss having those wine appreciation and tastings in the studio. <laughs> I appreciate that greatly, and I know you're going to have a wonderful time in New Orleans. Just bring bug spray.
0: Yes, I, you I will
2: I, need bug spray. I'll be
0: sure to bring along the off that is an essential here in Maine as well.
2: Essential, yes. Yeah. Put those little strips outside and catch those bugs before they get in.
0: And uh, yeah, we we might be able to find a place to have a wine tasting or two if you ever make it down to Louisiana as well. So, I
2: I'd look forward to that. I do.
1: Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, well, fingers crossed that uh, the strike gets settled uh, fairly yes, soon in a, in a fair and just way for all of the actors and the writers.
2: Yes, absolutely. I, I heard the acting strike could be over before the writers strike, but you know we're nothing without the writers. So uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Absolutely. Well, good to talk with you. Our, our best as well to, uh, to Dior and Ember, and uh, we'll talk with you again down the road. You got it, Rich. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow, that was just that was just so great. Stephen Tobolowski with us here on downtown. A quick word from Cross Insurance. When we come back, great writer, author Joe Posnansky on his new book why we love baseball that's next on downtown
0: since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
1: Next guest on downtown is a terrific sports writer, a former National Sports Writer of the Year, the author of books like The Baseball 100, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, The Secret of Golf, and his brand new book that is absolutely delightful, Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments. Our conversation with the great Joe Posnatsky on downtown. Joe, welcome back. It's, It's great to be back, Rich. So I, I have to ask right away here, uh, did you not get enough people offering you alternate suggestions of the baseball 100? You decided to, uh, to come up with a uh, 50 plus moments that give people ample opportunity to say, Oh, but what about that?
3: Oh yeah. No, I, I, I was really missing people yelling at me for ranking something <laughs> too high or not ranking something at all. And, and uh, I thought, you know what? I, I, I should extend that. I should I should give people a chance to yell at me about something brand new.
1: <laughs> well, uh, the book is, is so good. I was, I was saying to somebody yesterday, I, I can't think of, of many books uh, where I'm sitting by myself reading and laughing out loud and then a chapter later uh, tearing up over something. It's just a wonderful collection. And, and what's great about it is it's not all those big moments. It's not about game-winning hits, although there are some in there but it's about those moments that the true baseball lovers remember forever.
3: Well, first of all, thanks for saying that, Rich, because it's exactly what I was going for. I, you know, it it does, of course, have the famous moments in there. Uh, there's your Babe Ruth called shot and Henry Aaron's home run and, and Willie Mays' catch and, and Reggie's three homers. I mean, they're in there. Uh, they're, they're, they're very, very famous moments throughout the book. But it is those other moments, uh, and and there are a lot of them that I think baseball fans don't know, know very very little bit about. Uh, you know, I mean, this this game has been around forever, and it, you know, you play 30, 30 teams play one hundred and sixty two games. There are going to be incredible, incredible moments uh, throughout, and and finding the the cool moments that uh, that that hopefully, like you say, make you laugh and. And, and and sort of you know tug at your tug at your heart a little bit uh was so much fun and and i'm so so excited you know i've been i've been you know, promoting this book and talking about this book it's not even out yet and it's it's out on tuesday and i'm just i'm so eager for people to read it and so eager for people to see it i can't I can't wait to 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 see what the conversation is.
1: Well, you had me right away with the story about uh, Dwight Evans hitting that home run in in a Stratomatic matchup using the 1988 teams. That was great.
3: Yeah, it was it was really fun. There 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 are several uh fictional moments in here. I wanted people to to know right up front that it was that kind of book. And uh and it's my favorite my favorite moment to put in there because Dwight Evans uh hit a home run to to help me win uh you know the the biggest the biggest dramatic series ever played against my best friend uh but more to the point as i write in there uh i've now that's now forever my best friend lost that world that <laughs> series forever like you can go to a library in, like, 50 years, and you'll <laughs> learn about my best friend losing that series the way it should be.
1: It also reminded me of one of my favorite baseball moments, and I think it was during the strike in 1981 when John Miller was calling Red Sox games, yeah. and they decided one night, and I, I can't believe to this day that they did it, and I think he was working with, with the great Ken Coleman at the time, and they decided to, to play a Stratomatic baseball game because the teams were on strike, and John Miller, every inning, impersonated a different legendary broadcaster.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, he you just don't get any better than John Miller. And and I would say there are a lot of people, I mean, he, he did everybody, but there are a lot of people who have done Ben Scully through the years, uh, but I don't think anybody got Ben Scully's voice exactly uh, right the way that John Miller did. He just, just a Just a
1: force. I want to talk about a few of the great stories in the book, and and I love the tale of uh, the great actor Joe Montana, who just uh, happened to be at Wrigley Field at a, at a pretty important moment when he was uh, working on his play Bleacher Bums.
3: Yeah, yeah he he was he came back to uh, to Chicago to perform Bleacher Bums uh, that he he and his company wrote. Uh, they were performing it, I think they were having it recorded for a for a radio uh, play. And so he was back in Chicago. It was early April, cold, miserable day. He loved the Cubs, so he was like, "This is great." But he w- looked out there and kind of saw the crowd was kind of sad. It was it was pretty pretty light, and and this is '98, and they're not you know the Cubs aren't any good, and and uh, and a kid goes to the mound uh, by the name of Kerry Wood, and it was his fifth start in the big leagues, and and he's there. Suddenly, for one of the greatest games in baseball history, where Kerry Wood strikes out twenty at age twenty, and it's it's it was so funny because I I'm I'm lucky enough to be friends with Joe, and I was talking to Joe about something entirely different about the Cubs that I wanted to include in the book, and he says like like we're talking, and he goes, well, hey, listen, if you ever want to talk about the Kerry Wood game, uh, I was there, and I'm like, you were there, and then he starts telling me the story of how he. How he ended up there in the middle of uh, of, of you know one of the all time classics and uh, just just beautiful and he's a he's a wonderful
1: wonderful guy. We're talking with Joe Posnanski about his new book, "Why We Love Baseball: A History." In 50 Moments, it comes out on September 5th from Penguin Random House. Well, uh, back in the 80s, when uh, the Maine Black Bears were going to the College World Series every year, they had a great rivalry with the University of Miami. Ron Frazier brought his hurricanes up here. And so I was so delighted to read the story of the Grand Illusion.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because people have asked me all the time, like, oh, how did you come up with these moments and whatever? And and what I did was, uh, like before I, you know, right at the start, I just wrote down moments just into my memory and, you know, some of them, the most obvious ones, and just wrote down moments. And the first moment I wrote down was that I knew had to be in the book was that Miami trick play, uh, which I'm, I'm assuming and hoping, I, I think a lot of these moments will, but that's a moment that as soon as somebody reads about it, I, I just imagine them. Running to YouTube yeah. to watch the play. Uh, obviously, it's the, I, I call it. You know, it's the greatest trick play in in, in baseball history. And uh, I mean, it's so involved. And I I talk about the uh, the you know what role the, the Batgirls had in in the play. And I mean, it's it, it's just it's just wonderful everything about that play is wonderful
1: when you talk about running to youtube there were several instances in the book when i did that but i was absolutely blown away by the story of the catch by al john frito that i thought i had seen all these years and then well then you told me the truth about it joe
3: (laughs) well and i didn't know the truth about it you know there's sometimes when you're writing a book you come upon a fact that you just feel like this can't be true and I'm nervous like to put it in like I'm, I'm not here trying to break news or anything. so I'm nervous about putting it in. The AlGan Frio catch is one of the most famous in baseball history because he made it in the World Series, he was playing for the Dodgers and uh, after he caught the ball, Joe DiMaggio, who was you know the least demonstrative player you know of his time and it maybe ever, kicked the dirt in frustration and, and it, it was caught on on you know. Uh, film and and they showed it in the newsreels and and I, it it made this this great catch uh, even more famous. Well, I wasn't going to include the catch in in the book because I've seen the the film of it as you have many times, and I thought to myself, this is not that good a catch. It's just it's not that good a catch. It wasn't. It it didn't stop. It didn't save a home run. He kind of stumbled around. I'm like, this is this is just not that good a catch, and. I went and sort of did due diligence, tried to find out about it, read what people wrote about the catch when it happened, and the catch they were describing was very different to me than the catch that I was seeing on, on film. It was like the, they talked about how he did save a home run, and, and you know how it was the most amazing catch they'd ever seen. And I thought this is so weird. And then I came across a story, and I came across the truth, which is that the film we are seeing is a reproduction of the catch (laughs) that he filmed literally the next day, the next day before game seven of the world series, the newsreels had the kind of power where they literally put all of the Dodgers back on the field, all the outfielders, they had the crowd, they told the crowd what was happening, told the crowd to cheer. And they literally hit fly ball and had him like reproduce the catch the best that he could. And so we have been looking at a reproduction of that catch for like 75 years. It's it's, it's mind-blowing.
1: I, I love that. One of the recurring themes through the book that I also thought was wonderful was the idea that uh, you know, baseball lives through the years and through the generations on the mythology of the game. And, and sometimes things may have happened. Maybe they didn't exactly the way they thought but it doesn't always matter, and no more, uh, no better representation of that than the embrace between Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly one of the most famous things uh, in baseball history. I mean, there's a statue in Brooklyn to it. It's It's been celebrated, uh, you know, and I think to be a baseball fan, and this is one of the things I sort of came across in my mind as I was writing the book. I think that to be a baseball fan, you sort of have to be okay with living between what really happened and what the mythology is Mm. like it's more much more than any other sport. I think there's a bunch of stories in in this book that are like, "Eh, did that really happen? Did that happen exactly the way they say, you know? And of course, in this case, there's a real question whether or not it ever happened at all. And, and uh, there of course are many people who think of course it it definitely did happen. And so I write about this sort of back and forth, between the question of whether or not this is 1947, Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, getting getting booed and and taunted by the fans, as is Pee Wee Reese, who was from uh, Louisville, and 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 you know, this supposedly happened in Cincinnati nearby, and the story being that that at some point Pee Wee Reese walked over, put his arm around Jackie Robinson to basically say you know, this is my guy, I'm standing with him, uh, you know, and so on. And that story has been told so many different ways, so many different times. There are some people, including Ken Burns, who, who, who really played it up in his documentary, believe it didn't happen at all. And others who believe it happened in a different way. And, and, uh, so I really explore all of that. I kind of come to a conclusion of what I think happened. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, it's an amazing part of baseball, how much the mythology of, of moments. And it's not just that. It's the call shot by Babe Ruth. It's Satchel Page versus Josh Gibson in, in, in the Negro Leagues. I mean, there are there are numerous stories like this that are, you know, we're walking a tightrope between myth and reality. And, and uh, I think baseball does that better than any other sport. Uh,
1: of course, in any book that looks at some of the, the terrific moments in baseball history, home runs are a big part of it. And I I love that you wrote about uh, two home runs that made possible much more famous home runs. And and those are the shots hit by Hal Smith and by Bernie Carbo. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, here you go. You mentioned those two, and people would be like, what? You know, most baseball (laughs) fans would be like, what? And then you'd be like, okay, well, have you heard of the Bill Mazeroski home run and the Carlton Fisk home run? And You know, most baseball fans would say yes. And neither one of those are possible, uh without hal smith and without bernie carbo and and uh i loved i loved it you know the, the things that we cherish as as you know sports fans across the board because i mean right now i'm writing a football book and i'm thinking a lot about football the same way which is a very different sport but 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 thinking about the same way a lot of these moments that we cherish they're just they're conclusions to, to wonderful, long chapters that have many, many other, many, many other stories within them. And it's, it's really funny to think about that in many ways, the Hal Smith home run in, in that Yankees game uh, and the Bernie Carbo home run in that Red Sox, uh, 75 uh, World Series against the Reds, they were bigger hits. I mean, they, the, 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 their team was losing when, the, when they hit the home run. It was a very different, those were much more clutch in some ways. Um, but they're, they're largely forgotten, and, and I, I didn't want that. I wanted those to be remembered a little bit more.
1: Uh, there are so many great broadcasting calls through the years. I always lean toward those, and, and you talk about, of course, Russ Hodges uh, in 1951 and uh, both Jack Buck and Joe Buck. For my money, and you talk about it in the book, there is no better call that I can think of than Vin Scully on that fourth no hitter by Sandy Koufax. First of all, letting the crowd take over and then that incredible summation that only Vin Scully could give after the crowd settles down a bit.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it was the most perfect day in that it was the most perfect pay, you know, perfect game by Sandy uh, Koufax it was the only perfect game and the perfect call by uh by by finn i mean but I'll, I'll tell you something funny about that so i wrote that chapter and that chapter goes through the entire call of his entire inning uh the final inning of, of that game and i wrote the call i wrote the chapter and loved it because it's you know mostly vin's words and all of that but this is the first book where i actually read the audiobook i narrated the audiobook and <laughs> Go in there, I'm reading the audio book, it's all going fine, and suddenly we get to the chapter of Vince Scully. Suddenly, I've got to read Vince Scully's words. Two and two to
1: Harvey Keen, oh no. Exactly.
3: (laughs) And the great thing about that is exactly what you did. It is impossible to read Vince Scully's words without doing sort of an amateurish, (laughs) yours wasn't, yours is better than mine, but an amateurish impression. Oh, but there, I'm doing the same thing. You cannot say two and two to Harvey Keen without going two and two to Harvey Keen. You just, there's <laughs> no way to do it otherwise, other than to try to sound like Vince. So that was that was a very funny uh, moment for me, where I'm sitting in a in a dark, you know, booth. Uh, just trying to do Vince Scully impressions, which was, which was good. I needed John Miller. That's what I needed. I needed John Miller to do it.
1: I'm very impressed that you included one of the great and often forgotten performances in baseball history. And that's the remarkable work of Bugs Bunny against the Gas House Gorillas.
3: Incredible (laughs) down 94 to nothing. I mean, 94 to nothing all by himself. He has no teammates (laughs) for him to come all the way back the way that he did just incredible that is my wife's favorite moment in the book uh, to, to the point where she she you know she helps me with everything I do and she she kind of edited the book but she went back and watched uh the gas house gang uh, gas house gorillas um, literally frame by frame so she was changing like oh you know there's a there's a mistake in there on the scoreboard you got to fix that and just like like she went frame by frame <laughs> through the whole uh baseball bug uh, uh, cartoon and and uh, uh, I love it. it's but I mean that's there are as you know there are quite a few fictional moments in the book and it's just because I mean that's a big part of, of why we love baseball is you know Bugs Bunny and and uh, Field of Dreams and and League of Their Own and uh, Bull Durham I mean they're they're all in here.
1: And one of the most poignant stories in the book involves a utility infielder played, had a cup of coffee with the Red Sox, uh, John McDonald and the story of him and his dad.
3: Oh yeah. Just the most beautiful story. Uh, I mean, just, just incredible. I mean, and, and I'll tell you what, I mean, John McDonald, again, a moment that I knew I was going to put in the book. I talked to John uh, who was amazing to, to talk with about it. Um, But when I rolled the baseball 100, which I loved, it was all about greatness, right? Mm -hmm. Every player in it, no matter whether I should have included, you know, others in there or not, every player in there was great. Every player we're talking about was great. Everything about them was, you know, the very, very best that baseball has to offer. And that's great, but it's only a part of baseball. And as you know, so much of baseball is you know John McDonald, and and here's a guy who was a, you know he he was sitting with his father, uh you know basically his father on his deathbed. I mean he went to be with his father in his last days, and his father turned to him and said, you know um, hit a home run for me, after I'm gone hit a home run for me, which you know Johnson was very very unlike his father to say anything like that. And John kind of laughed and said, well, you know, it's going to take me a while. I don't, I don't, I don't hit many home runs. Uh, But he was serious. His father was serious. And then, you know, as, as only baseball, it feels, uh, it seems uh, the poetry of the game, he comes back and, and uh, after his father's uh, death, he returns on father's day, of course. And he sent in as a pinch hitter, of course. And, you know, it's, the rest is
1: is magic well speaking of magic and i had as many times as i had seen the highlights i had never noticed until i read it in the book and and i'm so glad i did because i went right to youtube and that is to see (laughs) if you want to see joy personified nowhere better than the guy known as fat freddie fitzsimmons in
3: 1951 yeah and there is another another moment of that I've seen, and I imagine many of our baseball fans uh, friends out there have seen the shot heard around the world a million times, and heard Ross Hodges's call a million times. There's the great uh, video uh, film of it that you can just see on YouTube anytime you want. It's so great, and I'd watch it a bunch of times. But now I've got to write about it. I'm trying to figure out new things to say about it. You know, it's it's probably been written about as much as. Is any moment in the history of baseball, what, what do is there to say? And I'm watching it and I look over at the first base coach and, and my eye, your eye never, it, your eye never goes over there. It's like, that, no, no, it's like that video of the, you know, the people making passes and, and a gorilla walking out and you'd see the gorilla, like you never look at the first base coach during the, during the shot her around the world. And I looked over at the coach and like you said, just uh, the joy. It's so, it's, so amazing how crazy he goes and how much fun he's having and i ended up writing about him uh, with the shot around the world and he had a great story anyway beyond beyond just that so it was uh it was great fun
1: i I would also say too i i would read an entire book joe of just the footnotes that you collected for this one
3: (laughs) i love i love the footnotes you know i mean I've, i've been doing those on my on my newsletter and blog for forever um and uh, you know, it's just I, I there's, the way my mind works anyway is sort of like I'll think about something and I'm like, oh, well, by the way, let me tell you this. Uh, that's completely separate, but but it's kind of interesting. um That's sort of the way my mind works. So I just I went all in on the footnotes, <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of them. There there are a lot of them, but I think they're really fun, and and uh, you know. It, if you're if you want to keep reading, you you can skip right over them. I mean that's fun, but uh, you'll miss out, I think, on uh, some weird facts uh, that uh, that I was able to find.
1: And, and I have to ask you uh, your your thought on this uh, Theo Epstein, hot or not?
3: Ooh, yeah. Well, that was <laughs> sometimes you run across stuff and you're like, this is so weird and stupid that I don't even know if I can include it. Um, but there I was writing about the Cubs, of course, and, and the and the World Series and. And I go and sure enough, the day he's hired, Chicago Tribune does a whole section on Theo Epstein hot or not. And the, the, the <laughs> crazy thing was, uh, like they had a like it was it wasn't just like hot or not like check mark. It was like a like a point counterpoint, like a full point counterpoint. Somebody saying, Oh yeah, he's definitely hot and and then somebody else going, eh no, I don't I don't see it. Really, <laughs> really weird. Uh, but it, but it also, what I love about it is, it sort of shows how much hope was invested in him. Literally, the day he arrived, the day he got there, everybody just had this. Okay, you know what? We found the guy that is going to break this drought, and uh, and sure enough, he did.
1: Has Mike Sure finished uh, writing his essay yet? <laughs> <laughs>
3: He's working on the second part. I, so I went to Mike. So Mike, you know, is my podcast partner, and one of my closest friends, and, and uh, you know, the guy behind Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, and The Good Place, and he was Moe's on The Office. Mike, um, I went to Mike and said, hey, I've got, I, I want you to write the greatest moment in Red Sox history. And I told him what that moment was. But he didn't even listen to what I said. <laughs> he just thought I said, write the greatest moment in Red Sox history. And he decided to write like all of the greatest moments in Red Sox. history, And it just went on and on. And on. I mean, I finally had to cut some of it out. I mean, it was just like Mike, man. I mean, you, you, you wrote your own book. So, but it's wonder, It's so good. It's so funny and good. And, and, you know, I think Red Sox fans uh, will just recognize themselves. You know, that's Mike is the ultimate Red Sox fan. And, And I think they'll they'll recognize themselves in his chapter.
1: Well, uh, the book was so good. I I spaced it out over several nights because I didn't want it to end. I'm ready for the director's cut. It's an absolutely fabulous read. Why We Love Baseball, a history in 50 moments from Joe Posnatsky comes out on September 5th. From Penguin Random House, if you don't do it already, listen to the podcast, subscribe to Joe Blogs. But this is uh, this is something else, especially with our our Red Sox going down the chute here in September. This <laughs> has reminded me what I love about the game. So Joe, uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Rich. Well, it's such a great book. We love talking to Joe. Joe Posnanski, his new book, "Why We Love Baseball: A History in Fifty Moments." Our thanks to Joe. Thanks to the wonderful Stephen Tobolowsky. And to you for joining us hey uh, next next time out. Got a couple of great guests as well. actor and now author Ed Begley Jr and the legendary singer Judy Collins next time on downtown.